Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. So today, I'm really excited to have Emily Esfahani-Smith on the show. Emily writes about psychology, culture, and relationships. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Time, The Atlantic, and other publications. Emily is also a columnist for The New Criterion, as well as an editor at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where she manages the Ben Franklin Circles Project, a collaboration with the 92nd Street Y and Citizen University to build meaning in local communities. Her latest book, Just Out, is The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Emily. Scott, it's great to be here with you. It's great to be here with you as well. Wow, what a delightful, beautiful, touching, uh, existentially meaningful book. That thank you, that, thank that, you so much. That you have written. <laughs> I was trying to think <laughs> of all the adjectives that, that that come to mind when I think holistically about it. Um, really enjoyed the book. I'm, I know I'm going to enjoy chatting with you today. Um, I want to ask you a question. Um, what is Sufism? I can't even pronounce it. What is Sufi- Sufism? <laughs> Sufism, sure. So, <laughs> and what is your personal yeah. experience with it? Yeah, of course. So I grew up in Montreal in a Sufi meeting house that my parents administered. So Basically, the the main floor of the house was a place where um, seekers came twice a week in the evenings and meditated for several hours. And they were Sufis. And and Sufism is a mystical, it's a school of mysticism that's associated with Islam. And uh, it involves 
the practice of meditation, the practice of loving kindness. And basically what the what seekers are doing on the path is trying to, you know, break down the self, the ego, so that they can grow as close as possible to God or the ultimate reality. And the way that they do this is through practices like meditation and, and loving kindness and service. And so this is the environment that I was I was surrounded by as a child. I, I grew up with people coming over to our house and meditating and and being exemplars of, of love and service. And I think it made me think from an early age about what it meant to lead a meaningful life. What does a meaningful life look like? And do you have to have some sort of spiritual or religious affiliation in order to lead a meaningful life? Right. So you started thinking about these questions at a very early age, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Did you have any existential angst as a kid? Did it, did it, did it give you any profound sadness as well as um, joy? I think maybe not so much as a child. I think maybe as I, as I grew older and, and came into adolescence and later in college and started really reflecting more deeply on religion and, and whether you could know for sure if, if there was some sort of higher being out there and and what that meant for whether life has meaning. I think at that point in my life, I started maybe asking questions and, and feeling a little bit more uncertain about the meaning of life and, and what makes our lives meaningful in general. And, and I think struggling with that uh, is ultimately what, you know, what led me to write this book because I wanted to understand can you, you know, what are the building blocks of a meaningful life? Can you lead a meaningful life regardless of what your metaphysical beliefs are, regardless of whether you have faith in something beyond? And and, and I, I was inspired by the many people I interviewed, by the research that I came across in psychology, uh, by the philosophy and, and literature that I read and, and write about in this book. I was very inspired to see that, yes, indeed, you, you don't have to be a person of faith to lead a meaningful life. Though, of course, you can you can have religion and be a spiritual person and, and have meaning as well. But there are untapped sources of meaning all around us that we all can draw upon, no matter who we are and what we believe and what we do. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that your book is very, has a lot of religious undertones, but it's it's a very spiritual book as well. And I, and I think that um, you do talk about these non-secular forms of meaning that right. exist. So I really want to get at this distinction you make that kind of lies at the heart of a lot of your book, and that's between happiness and meaning. And I know you wrote that uh, that delightful article for The Atlantic that went viral about the difference between happiness and meaning, and you unpack that a bit more in your um, in, in your introduction. So yeah, maybe we could talk a little about that. Um, how does uh, a philosophy experiment like Notesix experiment illustrate a little bit of this difference? So, so Robert Nozick was a philosopher at Harvard, and he he was kind of one of you know one of the happiness skeptics who I write about in my book. And basically, he he wanted to take aim at this idea that happiness is the be all end all of life, which is an idea that a lot of us live by. You know, if you ask people what their top value is, that they'll say happiness. You know, the self help industry is a multi billion 
dollar industry. There are coaches who are, you know, intended to help us all lead more, lead happier lives. And, and so Nozick was questioned this idea that happiness should be our end goal. And the way that he illustrated it to us was through a thought experiment where he said, you know, imagine that you can plug into a machine that gives you that could give you any experience that you want. And so if happiness is our end goal, then we would plug into the machine and, and constantly be asking for experiences of happiness and, and pleasure and good feelings. And, you know, you can plug out of the machine whenever you want and figure out what next what further experiences that you want to have. And, but ultimately you could be in the machine and, and you could lead a happy life. And he asks us, is that, would that be a good life? Is that the kind of life you would want to lead or you'd want your children to lead? And I think the answer for most of us is no. And the reason is that, you know, we don't just want to feel a certain way. We don't just want to feel happy. We want our, our lives to amount to something. We want to do things in the world that are significant and that make a difference in the lives of others. And so, so, you know, we want to lead active lives, lives that contribute in some way. And, and that, and, and I think that's right. And I think that that really, that, that gets at this distinction between meaning and happiness. If happiness is really a positive mental and emotional state, which is how psychologists define it, then meaning is bigger. It's about connecting and contributing to something beyond the self. Uh, when psychologists ask people whether their lives have meaning and people say that they do, it's usually because, you know, there are three conditions that have been satisfied. The first is that these individuals feel that their lives are driven by a sense of purpose or a goal that in some way contributes to the world or to other people. The second is that they think that their lives matter. So their, their lives are significant and have worth uh, in some way. And the final one is that they believe that their lives are coherent. So they don't conceive of their experiences as random occurrences, but rather as part of a larger narrative that explains who they are and where they come from. So you can see that, you know, we may use meaning and happiness interchangeably, but actually they're quite different. And what I'm trying to argue in my book is that what we really want is to lead a meaningful life, that humans are meaning-seeking creatures. Oh, wow, there's so much uh, in what you just said. So I'm trying to my my brain's trying to compute which part to pick out and focus on. <laughs> but um, let me let me uh, let me let's get into the science a little bit. Um, you know, the research does show that, that meaning and happiness are strongly correlated with each other. But correlation, it's not a perfect correlation, of course. And correlation doesn't mean causation. So this is the interesting thing: is you know, it seems like happiness doesn't really predict meaning but meaning actually does predict happiness right so you know you you don't get happiness by striving for happiness but you kind of get happiness as an epiphenomena of meaning yeah that, that's right that that's what the research that i cover in my book shows as well that you know pursuing happiness can actually backfire it can actually kind of make you feel unhappy, make you feel anxious about the fact that you're not feeling as happy as you want to. But when you set your sights on leading a meaningful life instead and pursuing meaningful endeavors like, you know, practicing a musical instrument, studying, volunteering, that you actually experience a deeper form of well-being down the road. Yeah. So, you know, there seems to be like um, 
it seems to be like hot right now to like have a backlash against happiness. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Like, um, I mean, your book is important in, in, in singling out the importance of meaning. But if you notice, there's a lot of books that the books are just about like why happiness is like the happiness trap I just bought, you know, there's like yes. the happiness uh, anxiety nation or whatever it's called. So there yes. seems to be a big backlash. Um, do you think like, like if enough people like start hopping on your bandwagon that you, you know, like you're, you, you did such a beautiful book. Are you ever worried that people are going to like, people love, like there's going to be a backlash against meaning. <laughs> I'm sure. Or is meaning guess- foolproof? Is meaning foolproof? Yeah. I don't know. So I don't think that meaning is foolproof. And I think that there are definitely there, you know, if you think of happiness and meaning as goods um, that a human life can have, I, I don't think that meaning is the highest good. I think that it's higher than happiness. But I think that you know, the highest good might be something like, you know, being a, a good person or, or being a person of character. And and it, if, if your kind of desire to lead a meaningful life conflicts with being a good person, uh, then I think that I would not advise meaning in that case. I would advise kind of deferring to, to your conscience and to uh, your sense of morality. And, and I say this because there are a lot of examples of people who, in the name of meaning, have done horrific acts, you know, whether it's, you know, the obvious example of, you know, the Nazis during World War II or the members of ISIS today to, you know, more local examples. So I think that meaning is important, um, but it's, it's not the highest good. That said, I do think that if you do lead a good life, a life that is a life of character, that you will feel like your life is meaningful at the end of the day. Cool. And also, you're not saying that that there's anything wrong with happiness. I mean, do I need to feel guilty if I'm happy? Like, no, and I, no, I, like, like, am I like, I just I got recently got the PlayStation 4 VR. And it's like so much fun to play, like, because I, I get no meaning from that. But it's really just fun. Can I enjoy it? Am I allowed to enjoy that? Of course, I, think, I, think, I think that there's nothing wrong with with happiness. I think obviously, you know, we want to be happy. And we want the people we love and care for to be happy. But I just think that when we're prioritizing our own lives and our goals and the, our hobbies and the things that we do that, you know, meaning is probably a better, you know, signpost and happiness Good. to guide us. Good. And yeah, let's get really, really serious here for a second. You know, your book, um, you talk about the meaning crisis, which is real. And you, you highlight some um, disconcerting trends in society that um, I think people should become aware of. So could you talk a little bit about this meaning crisis? Yes. So I, in one of the chapters of my book, I I try to highlight the fact that there are millions of people today who who don't know why their lives are meaningful, who don't have this, who don't believe that their lives are meaningful, don't have a strong sense of purpose, and the the result is that it is suffering. Basically, they you know more the rates of depression have been rising, rates of anxiety and loneliness have been rising, uh, the suicide rate has been rising. In fact, last spring, it reached a 30-year high. And I would argue that part of the reason is that people are struggling to understand what makes their own lives worth living. And, you know, meaning, meaning has been found to kind of be a buffer against some of these signs of malaise that we that we're seeing across the culture. And in one of the studies that I write about, it was it was found to be a 
a predictor of, of, of the suicide rate. So explaining in part why people were committing suicide. And I think that's obviously, it's obviously very tragic. And I think part of the reason that people feel so adrift and, and like their lives don't have meaning is that we've placed meaning on such a pedestal. We've kind of, you know, turned it into this really grand pursuit as something that you can only have or do if you're a sage, a religious master, or, you know, curing cancer or writing the great American novel. But what I want to argue and what I found by turning to the research and interviewing people is that actually it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, you can lead a meaningful life. And, and, and it comes by kind of relying on these little sources of meaning that are all around us and that we all can tap into. Everyone who feels like there's a loss of hope, your book like is page after page of just – it's like filling up my meaning tank just reading the book. Um, one, let me give one example, something I found really profound. Um, you talked about a story of the Greek hero Sisyphus. No yes. idea if I pronounced that correctly. But you know, so one could t- – tell a little bit about that story because I think it's a really nice illustration of how you know, even if you feel like – you think to yourself, well, for the rest of my life, I will have – to how I have uh, hopeless, you can actually reframe the situation, right? Right. So, so the myth of Sisyphus is that Sisyphus was this ancient Greek hero who did something to upset the gods, and so the gods punished him by um, wrapping kind of a large boulder around his ankle with a chain and condemning him to forever have to climb up the mountain with this boulder wrapped around him. And but but right as he gets to the top of the mountain, he falls back down. And so hour after hour, day after day, month after month, he is climbing the mountain and right before he gets to the top, he falls back down. And so this, I mean, you can just imagine a life that's like this. You feel like nothing you do matters, that you are you are shackled to some fate that is not in your control, that your life is futile. And yet, Albert Camus, the French philosopher who I write about in that section of the book, he kind of, he invites us to reinterpret the Sisyphus myth as actually a wonderful example of a meaningful life because Sisyphus kind of embraces the his task. Um, he doesn't let the the gods kind of ruin his own sense of himself. He embraces the task with defiance and with freedom. And every time he falls back down the mountain, he faces a choice whether to lay down there in, in despair or to get back up and try again. And every time he get he gets back up and he tries again. And and so Camus says, so we have to kind of imagine that Sisyphus is satisfied with this fate. And I, I, you know, it sounds like you took comfort from that story, Scott, and I do too, because I think we've all been there. I think we've all kind of been on some path that we just feel like isn't going anywhere, or we keep trying to do something, and we keep putting ourselves out there, and it goes nowhere. We get rejected. Our sense of worth and, and esteem starts falling apart, and yet at the end of the day, we each have a choice to kind of get up and, and, and seize the day again and to embrace those things that make life meaningful. Totally. And, you know, I think that I struggle and you and we all struggle. So I'm not the only one that struggles with this, with the feeling of like nothing I do is enough. You know, nothing yeah. I do is – and and the, the story just is, is, t- is point because like if, if one person can – you know, if it can be enough, just – if the process can just be enough, 
Right. Well, that, what a beautiful way of framing your life. Like well, there's so much pressure for the for the for you not to be enough until you achieve a public or recognized success. Right. No, I think I think that's right. And I think it, it reminds me of this uh, this effect in psychology that's called the IKEA effect. And it's it's based on social science that they in the lab that researchers have done. And the idea is that, you know, when you put together a piece of IKEA furniture, even though IKEA makes it more complicated than it has to be so that you put more work into it, that at the end of the day, you actually like the furniture more and you value it more because you put that work into it. And I think it's the same thing with our lives. If you put the work into it, if you if you devote yourself to it, to the processes that kind of take up day-to-day life, then ultimately you'll value your life more uh, than you would if it was just kind of, if you were just coasting by and, and getting everything that you wanted to. I like that phrase, valuing your life. Isn't that mm-hmm. isn't that very poetic? That phrase, just like think about the implications. It's like like you unfold in your values that are important to you, your life. Right. I don't right. Know. Exactly. So, exactly. I don't know. Anyway, okay. So let's talk about some of these pillars of meaning um, that you have found across various sources. You've kind of aggregated um, you, these kept reoccurring these themes. One is belonging. The importance of belonging. Um, so tell me about um, the, what is what is the heart of this uh, of this need and uh, this pillar of meaning and what are its benefits? I think a lot of people, when they think about what are the building blocks of a good life, they think, oh, relationships. Everyone, you know, if you have valuable relationships, then you're you'll be living a good life. But I'm arguing that it's actually a specific type of relationship that matters to meaning and it's a relationship defined by belonging. And so we were just talking about about, you know, value and valuing your own life. Well, belonging is all about whether another person values you, whether they think that you matter and they treat you like you matter. In other words, with respect and with care, they don't They're not trying to harm you emotionally or physically. They're not rejecting and ostracizing you. And if you think about it, it it makes sense that that this would be a pillar of belonging because when other people think that your life matters, you think you'll think that it matters as well. So, so, so it is, it's, it's this sense of I matter to others. I'm valued by others and the benefits there's the, there, there are so many, you know, benefits to belonging. It's, you know, it's associated with better health, with better uh, physical health and emotional health and, and with having more meaning in life. And, uh, and so it's, it's a very important pillar of meaning. It's probably, it's probably for most people, the most important pillar of meaning, because when you ask people, you know, what are your top sources of meaning? They end up saying my close relationships, you know, time and again in surveys. Yeah. And then there's, there's a flip side of that, which you talk about, you know, extreme loneliness is, um, it's really important predictor as well of, of a lot of um, negative outcomes in life, right? Exactly. So, so extreme loneliness is is associated with all kinds of you know physical and mental health problems. And when researchers kind of induce feelings of social isolation in the lab setting by 
for example, having you feel like you're rejected by a group, then you you actually end up feeling both like your life is less meaningful and like life in general is less meaningful. So there's something really vital about a sense of belonging and, and feeling like like other people care about you. It's I mean, Roy Baumeister and Mark Leary, Leary wrote a famous paper years ago called the need to belong. And it really is a need. It's, it, it's, it's as important to our physical and emotional health as, as, you know, as water and food are, because without it, we, we suffer and we can, we even die prematurely. I absolutely agree. And, uh, and Maslow put that as one of his assessors. I have to mention Maslow's name at least once Absolutely. in every podcast episode. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, let's talk about your, um, your next pillar, uh, purpose. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, Bill Damon's research on this? And um, yeah, just a little bit about that and some of the most important things he's found that, um, that drive purpose. Bill, Bill Damon is a researcher at Stanford, and he is uh, a leading expert on, on youth purpose and, and on purpose in general, but he has, his research focuses on how young people develop or fail to develop purpose. And he so he defines purpose as a, a long-term goal that, that organizes our lives and that involves making a contribution in some way to others. And you know, purpose, I think, sounds can sound really big, like my purpose is curing cancer or my purpose is reducing the achievement gap in education. But actually, purpose can come in all shapes and sizes. So while certainly you might have a grand purpose, like, you know, curing cancer or writing the great American novel, you can also have a purpose that's more immediate and local, like like being a good friend or being a good parent to your child. There's one study, actually, that shows that when teenagers do chores around the house, like, you know, babysitting or doing the dishes, that they actually feel a greater sense of purpose. And, and it's because, you know, they're, they're contributing, they're making a contribution to something that lies beyond themselves. And so, so that's what purpose is. Now, Bill's research has found that young people are, are more and more, you know, growing up without a sense of purpose, which is troubling because, Purpose, being purposeless basically amounts to being adrift in other aspects of life as well. So if you don't have a strong sense of purpose, you don't end up doing quite as well in school. You're not as motivated. You're more likely to fall prey to distractions like like drug and alcohol. Um, so, and on the flip side, if you have a sense of purpose throughout those those young adult years you end up being more motivated, you do better in school, you, your emotional and mental health are, are better, you're more resilient in the face of adversity. So, and what Bill has found with young people, I think has been replicated with, with adults as well, the, the, the critical importance of purpose in, in a meaningful life and in a healthy, full life. Absolutely. And I like how you link purpose to um, another topic I love, authenticity. You know, we had, I actually had, you know, Brene Brown on this podcast recently, and she uh, has done a lot of work on authenticity, really convinced me of the power of it. And you talk about how being reminded of your authentic self can um, kind of renew your purpose in a sense. Is that right? So sometimes just being yourself can be a purpose. Does that make sense? 
It does. And I think, so I think one way to think about purpose, if it's a purpose is about contributing to the world, what you're basically, what you're contributing is, is you is the best that's inside of you to the world. And so it's, so it's important to know what the best parts of yourself are. What are your talents and strengths and, and interests and how can you cultivate them to, to contribute to the world and to give to others the best version of yourself? Cool. And yeah, you talk about a purpose-driven life and you say, look, it's not all about smiling and happiness and PlayStation 4s. Yeah. <laughs> VRs. But um but it's, you know, but it's it's still it's good on its own, right? Exactly. I mean, if you if you think about so many of the things that we do, like like you with your research, Scott, me with my writing, I know you you have a background in music as well. You probably spend a lot of time as a kid practicing. I have my brother is it plays sports, he spends a lot of time practicing. So you think of so many of the things that we do they don't necessarily make us happy moment to moment. They're hard work. They're stressful. They're effortful. And yet we do them anyways because they they give our lives a sense of purpose and they are about kind of connecting with something that's beyond ourselves. So tell me a little bit about um, how Adam's, Adam Grant's research on um, meaning uh, relates to purpose. I love Grant's research. Adam has, has shown that one of the ways that you can find meaning in a workplace setting is by contributing to others. So he points out that the the jobs that have the most meaning, where the people working those jobs rate their jobs as the most meaningful, tend to be service jobs like you know being a surgeon, being a clergyman, being an educator, and and it makes sense. These are the jobs that you would think of if you when you think of meaningful careers. But of course, most of us don't necessarily work in jobs like that. You know, there are lots of corporate lawyers out there, lots of administrators, retail clerks. And so the question arises of how, you know, how can you find, well, can you find meaning in, in those careers as well? And Adam, Adam's work suggests that you can. And the way that you can is by adopting what I call in my book, a service mindset. So even if your job isn't directly tied to saving someone else's life or educating someone or giving to them in some way, you can still think about the way that what you do makes a contribution to others or to your office culture. So an example that I love is um, comes from John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy, when he was visiting NASA in 1962. And, and the story goes that he was walking through the hallways and he encountered a janitor there. And he asked the janitor, you know, what, what are you doing here? And the janitor said to him, uh, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And I just, I love that. That's one of, you know, it's one of my favorite kind of little anecdotes that I came across while researching the book. And the point is that, you know, we were, we're all contributing to something bigger and so much of how much meaning we feel and experience has to do with how we understand that contribution and to remember that we're contributing to something bigger. Oh man, I, I absolutely love that. Um, <laughs> that's a big theme of the book, right? Is uh, it's just something outside yourself, you know? Exactly. Whether it's exactly. another another person or a or a, a, a task, you know. Anyway, um, so you um, the next pillar you talk about is storytelling. Can you tell me a little bit about why? What does that have to do with wanting to make sense of the world? Storytelling was actually the pillar that I guess in a lot of ways was the most unexpected for me to include in the book. And, and that was the hardest chapter to write as well. So 
if you remember back, if you think back to the definition of meaning that I gave earlier in our conversation, I said that it involves three things, uh, purpose, mattering, and coherence. And so storytelling really taps into the coherence leg of the definition. And what do I mean when I say storytelling? Storytelling is how we make sense of our experiences and our place in the world. So we don't conceive of our experiences as just random and disconnected occurrences. We tend to craft a narrative about them. So, you know, you, you know, in your book, Ungifted, Scott, you, you created a beautiful narrative about- You read Ungifted? Yes. Oh, wow. I did. So about how you got to where you are today because of experiences that you had when you were younger. And I think that all of us, whether we're writers or not, we're constantly doing that. We're constantly thinking about what our experiences mean for us and how they define who we are. And so and that's what I call storytelling. That's what I mean by it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was thinking about the narrative I presented on Gifted when I was reading your book because um, I was thinking about how, my gosh, there. I mean, there's so much that we omit, you know, when we tell our stories, you know, um, yeah. and we kind of like create something that's coherent. Um, you've said that, you know, earlier about the importance of coherence, but it seems to be particularly important with our story, our narrative, or as um, uh, Dan McAdams called our narrative identity. Um, right, my, exactly. my narrative identity as a kid was ungifted, and then I decided as an adult to change my narrative identity, not just a competent human being. I, I know I love that, and I think that it it shows that what you just said shows the power of storytelling because we all have the power. We're we're the authors of our own stories, which means we have the power to change them. And if we change our stories, we can sometimes change the way we lead our lives because our identities kind of affect how we interact with the world, the identities that we cast onto ourselves, that we have the power of changing affect how we interact in the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's right. Or the, you know, changing our narratives. Um, so you, you mentioned something that I thought was, I was so intrigued by this, uh, this phrase, future nostalgia. Did future you- nostalgia, just as context for listeners, basically what this, this particular individual whose name was Carlos Air was telling me about a future that was that that was cut off to him because he he grew up in Cuba and had to leave uh, after the Cuban Revolution and so so he ended up coming to the United States but he constantly thought about the future that he could have had in Cuba had the revolution not occurred and he felt nostalgic for that future and, the, and so mm. the point that I'm making in that part of the book is that you know sometimes reflecting on our stories can be painful because we, we have to think about the things that we lost. Like Carlos said, you know, losing, losing his, his childhood in Cuba. Sometimes reflecting on our stories can be painful because we have to think about what we lost and, and we can feel nostalgic about it. And, and that's what future nostalgia is. I just love that expression. Okay. So uh, let's talk about the next pillar. Um, transcendence, you know, this is a word that, uh, has different meanings. How do you use this term and how does that relate to meaning? Transcendence is about connecting to something that is just far beyond 
the ordinary waking experience that we are living in day to day. So it's, it's kind of, it's what some people call mountaintop experiences. It's those moments when you just feel lifted out of yourself. So, you know, I've had those experiences in nature before I've had them occasionally in meditation, small versions of them. And, and these are, and, and, and the, the reason these experiences are so powerful is because they, they force you to, to shift how you think about yourself and the world and they bring you a greater sense of clarity and wisdom about your place in the world. So William James is one of the the greatest writers about these types of, you know, mystical experiences. And he says that they're ineffable. Um, In other words, they're difficult to describe and also that they're noetic, which they leave you with some kind of deeper knowledge about yourself and your place in the world. And that knowledge kind of stays with you and, and can just infuse your life with, with meaning in a really powerful way. Yeah. And I get to work with two modern day William Jameses, uh, James Pawelski yeah. and David Yadin. Um, yes. So let's talk a little bit about um, David Yadin's research, which is really, um, you know, quite revolutionary, kind of um, scientifically operationalizing some of these ideas, right? Yeah, exactly. So David is, is is his research is wonderful, and he he shows that there's there's two steps in a transcendent experience. Basically, you the first step is your sense of self diminishes, and then the second step is that as that sense of self diminishes, you connect with something that is beyond the self. Which and then this goes back to the ineffable part that William James talks about. What what that something is that you're connecting to. People call it different things. Some people don't even have a word for it. But usually what they're talking about is kind of some higher reality, some ultimate reality, some some larger truth that they feel that they have understood. Right. Is that what awe is? So awe, the, the emotion of awe, I think, is what that's what you feel. That's the emotion you feel during a transcendent experience. And, and it's, it, you know, with all you're kind of, you're overwhelmed by this, whatever stimuli it is, stimulus it is that you're experiencing. And this feeling of overwhelmingness forces you to shift the way that you think about the world. So I think transcendence and awe are, are very related. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you know, there's this line of research as well and all by Dr. Keltner and his colleagues. And um, and then also, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the work of Roland Griffiths? Roland Griffiths is a, is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And he's kind of, he's reviving a tradition of research that was very controversial. Basically, it, which is the, the research on hallucinogenic drugs that began in the 1960s with, with Timothy, Timothy Leary. The drugs were then outlawed in large part because people like Leary were basically becoming kind of evangelists for them and were seen as destructive elements of, of society, you know, fairly or not. But Roland has, has in a very responsible way, revived this, this body of work and he brings people into the lab and he, uh, assigns them to either a control condition or an experimental condition. And those in the experimental condition receive psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in mushrooms. And what, what Roland and his team are trying to do is they're trying to understand how does a mystical experience occasioned by psilocybin, how does it affect 
our lives? How does it affect our sense of meaning in life and other outcomes? Uh, so he studied addicts, uh, cigarette addicts. He studied people facing terminal cancer, and he studied just normal lay individuals to see. And, and what he's found is that um, among among these people, that the, the mystical experience does indeed infuse them with a profound sense of meaning. And that sense of meaning kind of stays with them long after the experiment is over. Fascinatingly, he's also found that giving people this mystical experiences helps them overcome their addictions. So one of the people I spoke to told me that after he was enrolled in study and after he had the mystical experiences with psilocybin, his urge to smoke cigarettes just completely vanished. Mm-hmm. And he smoked a number of packs a day and it just went away. And he said it's because he realized how small and insignificant that addiction was in relation to what he now knew as a result of the transcendent experience. Another person I spoke to was suffering from terminal cancer and, and sadly she died uh, during the process of writing this book, mm. but her story appears in my book and her, the, the study that she was in was all about how, how and whether a transcendent mystical experience can help alleviate your, the sense of fear and anxiety we have towards death. And in her case, it indeed did. It brought her a sense of peacefulness as she was approaching the end of her own life. That was such a touching story. And yeah, you, you ended the, the section saying, sadly, she passed away. But, you know, it was nice to know she passed away with peace. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so let's talk about uh, your last pillar of meaning, personal growth. And let me ask you a question. Why did you order them? the way you did, you know, why, why is personal growth? Is there a meaning to personal growth being the last pillar? Well, so I guess, I don't know if I would, I would necessarily, I, I don't conceive of personal growth as one of the pillars. I think of it as the way all of the pillars, the four pillars, belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence, how they come together gotcha. to lead us to grow. And Thank so, you for that so, clarification. Thank you. No, of course. I think I, absolutely. Um, growth, so that chapter is about adversity and traumatic experiences and how, how we can grow in the face of them rather than being undone by them. What I found, what I found was that the way that people cope with and are resilient in the face of adversity is by both relying on the pillars of meaning that they had already built in their lives prior prior to the trauma and also by further building those pillars in their life after the trauma so if you want to if you want to kind of weather adversity in a resilient and and healthy way it's important to have pillars in your life already and then if you want to grow after the trauma the best way to do so is by leaning on those pillars yeah no, that that's great. Um, and you talk about um, some very interesting research by James Pennebaker um, that people who keep their traumas a secret throughout their lives um, don't show as much growth than those who expressively write about it. Is that right? That's right. So, so Pennebaker has asked his research subjects to come into the lab and to to write expressively about the darkest moments of their lives. And he had, he had the research subjects do this either for three or four days. And what he found was that the more people made sense of the trauma, the more they tried to 
understand it, you know, tell a story about it, to go back to the storytelling pillar, the more they were ultimately able, able to overcome the trauma in a healthy way. And his research specifically shows that they visited the doctor less, that they had, you know, better health indicators later on, and that they did better in school. And I think that he's all, he also found that their mental and emotional health was better as well. Right. So th that research is important and it links to this emerging field of post-traumatic growth that you talk about in your book, that we can grow from our adversity and that expressive writing might be one tool that increases the probability that we'll grow. Exactly. That's right. Very cool. Okay. So let's, um, let's talk about um, – lastly, let's talk about cultures of meaning. Uh, I was very excited. I almost uh, fell off my bed actually when I got. I <laughs> saw that you mentioned the Future Project. Yeah. Because this is an organization that I am a big uh, proponent, and I'm uh, on their advisory board as well. And um, mm -hmm. thought you could talk a little bit about um, about how their um, their work creates a culture of meaning. The Future Project is an organization that is working with inner city kids to help them figure out what their purpose is. And I, I highlight them in the book along with a number of other cultures of meaning because the Future Project is part of a, a broader movement in our culture that of, of organizations and leaders and institutions trying to create cultures of meaning for people that help people lead more meaningful lives. And, and you know, we talked about Bill Damon earlier. I think Bill Damon is also involved with the Future Project. And as we were discussing, Damon's research shows that a lot of young people are struggling to understand what their purpose is. And when you don't find a purpose, when you don't have a purpose, you kind of drift through life aimlessly. And so the Future Project is really trying to combat that and to capture young people at, at the time of life when it matters most for them to find a purpose, to get them on the right path and, and to help them along it. And what I love about the Future Project is that they, you know, they want your purpose to, they want, they want to help young people find a purpose that really does involve contributing to others in some way. So it's not just about, oh, my purpose is to become a celebrity. It's about how can I make a difference in the world? How can I make the world a better place? Yeah, it's so great. And then you talk about, you know, when you get to be 70, 80, 90 years old, you, you just don't have to stop meaning then, do you? No. And, and in fact, I, th I think it becomes even more important as you get older. And the research does show that as people age, their, their sense of purpose declines. And you can understand why, you know, once once we reach retirement, so many of our old identities and, and roles like, you know, being a mother, being a, uh, a little league coach, being a supervisor, they, they kind of weaken or they vanish altogether. And so we're left wondering, well, how, how can I contribute now? What value does my life have now? And, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to answer those questions. You don't want to reach that point in your life and, and, and answer those questions in a negative way. And so it's, it's just as important to, to not just kind of think of the, the last third of your life as a time when, you know, you're retired, you're checked out. It, it's a time really to double down on your engagement with life and to really contribute and figure out how how you can live a meaningful life and one of the organizations that i that i profile in this section of the book is called encore and encore is trying to help people find their purpose in in the second half of their lives and and i and i, and I love it i love the idea that you know 
65 and onward is not about just being on vacation full time. It's about using all of the resources you've developed throughout your life to give to others. Yeah, I love that too. I'm glad that you talked about them. You talk about this idea of being at peace when the final moment arrives. That also was very poetic to me, that mm-hmm. that way of phrasing it. Um, you know, and this idea that even those, you talk about those who even, you know, two, they find out like they might have two weeks to live. There's still so much you can do in that two weeks of meaning. You yeah, know? no, absolutely. And especially, I mean, you know, reflecting on your life and, and trying to make sense of it all too. So you, so you reach that sense of resolution. Yeah. And you also say meaning and death are two sides of the same coin. I mean, that's quite it's a true. profound statement. You got, you got to agree. That's like, <laughs> that's not like, you know, like, oh, I like flowers, you know, like, <laughs> that's a heavy statement. Can you unpack it a little bit? Well, one of the people I interviewed for this book, I, I, I didn't end up ultimately including his, his story in it, but he, his wisdom remained with me. And he was, he's a Buddhist monk. And he told me that he spent three hours every day meditating on death. And it's, I thought, you know, I thought that was pretty profound. And He's a cheery guy, very cheery guy. Yeah, exactly. And, but I think, I think it makes sense. I think the reason why it's so important to human beings to find meaning in life, to understand what everything means, is the fact that we are mortal. And so many of the ways that we try to, try to find meaning is, is by trying to, defeat our own, own mortality, you know, by leaving a legacy behind, by creating something permanent that lives on after we die. So I think that, you know, meaning and death, it's really, they're part of the same, they're, they're being driven by the same yearning in us to show that our lives matter at the end of the day. And if you, you know, there's some really wonderful research on people facing death, they're, you know, they're, they're they have terminal cancer and their lives are going to end soon. And even though their time is so short, just by reflecting on the meaning of their own lives, on, on, the, on the pillars, they are able to face their end with much more peace and resolution because they're able to, you know, to find meaning at, at the very end. Emily, I think that's a great, a great place to end this podcast. Um, thank you so much for the book you've written. Um, you could obviously put your heart, soul, and mind into it. And also, I honestly can say that the, your book has um, has created light in this world. So oh, thank okay. you. Thank, thank you, Scott. That, that's so kind. It's so great to, to talk with you about these, these topics. And I'm so happy that we were able to come together for this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.